God's people are often referred to as sheep. Of course, today, my guess is that none of us, or at least very few of us, have even seen a sheep up close. So here's one note of information on sheep that you may not know. Sheep are not creatures well-suited for survival in the wild. They're slow, not the smartest, and are not equipped with any real defensive characteristics. They don't have like sharp teeth or claws or anything like that. So when a predator is among sheep, they have but one defensive maneuver to survive. They huddle together. In huddling together, the predator doesn't have an obvious weak link or weak sheep to attack, giving the shepherd time to come around and beat back the threat. As people, we really are like sheep. In our weakness, we huddle together. It's one of the reasons why we have community, why we have friends, family, is because we need each other. As human beings, God created us that way. We need others. In especially our hardships, I think this is revealed. You know, one of the things that really breaks my heart is uh, when we see the result of the inequalities in our society. You see a lot of people who don't have homes, you know, who are houseless. Where there's one, you often find many, right? A bunch of people gathered together, tense pitched, and they're just trying to get by. They're just trying to make it. They're just trying to survive. Why is it that in parks, overpasses, or different places where you find one homeless person, you'll find a bunch? It's because as human beings, when we're going through difficulties, when we're going through hardships, we're going through suffering, we huddle together. Because in huddling together with other people and other people who are likewise struggling, suffering, there's a sense of comfort, a sense of protection. At the end of the day, we really are, as people, well-characterized because in our weakness, the best thing that we can do is huddle together. Our passage today picks up after Jesus had had his encounter with the royal official, healed his son. Jesus now continues on by heading to Jerusalem. Our passage comes from John chapter 5, verses 1 through 18. And it says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We don't know exactly which feast it is because it's unnamed, but there were many different kinds of feasts and holidays on the Jewish calendar. Jesus goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate for this particular feast. Verse 2, and now there was in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. The events of this passage take place at a pool, Bethesda, near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem. These pools were as large as a football field and about 25 feet deep. We're talking huge pool. The five roofed colonnades were like public baths in the ancient world. They were open to the public and were gathering places for beggars and other broken people. And given the size of these pools, the gathering of people around this location, around these areas, would have been substantial. In fact, John writes 
that there was a multitude of invalids. A multitude is a huge number, people upon people. These invalids are identified as blind, lame, and paralyzed. Blind, of course, we get, can't see. However, lame and paralyzed often kind of sound like they're the same thing and they're lumped together, but lame refers to those with a disability rooted in physical inability, an improperly functioning body part, maybe from birth or injury. And paralyzed refers to those primarily with a disability that's rooted in disease. It's the result of some disease. Now, among this mass of physically challenged people, there was a lame man. Now, to identify just one lame man in the sea of this humanity would have been near on impossible to do. We don't even know much about this man except for that he was lame. And John doesn't give us much more as far as information and details about him and about his lameness, except to tell us that he had suffered this condition for 38 years. 38 years. That's a long time. For how many would that be longer than the whole of your entire length of life so far? When you've lived with a condition that long, there's pretty much no hope of finding a fix and you get used to your condition. And it is upon this scene that Jesus enters. Verse six, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirring. And while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Throughout this sea of broken people, Jesus sees this man lying there. Of all of those people, many of whom probably have the same condition, Jesus specifically sees this man. And knowing that he'd been there waiting a long time, Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? Or put a different way, meaning the same thing, do you want to become well? The question itself, if you think about it, seems curious, right? After all, we'd all probably assume that it's a given that he'd, of course, want to become well. But there's a great deal of meaning in the question, do you want to be healed? Specifically with one word, become. Do you want to become healed? Within that one word, become, that one single word rests the important detail of how something happens. How this man would be healed. Become. So in asking this question, Jesus is asking this man far more than it might appear on the surface. This man is a broken person, but so is every person. We're all broken. Therefore, this question is important, not just for him then, but for all of us even today. The question that I lay before you this morning and ask is, 
How do you become healed? How do you become healed? There's three things that I want to draw your attention to from this passage that go to answering this question. And the first of these is by avoiding the trap of being a superstitious Christian. Superstition is what? It's false confidence in something for favor. If you look at this man, Jesus asks him, do you want to become well? Do you want to become healed? And even as curious on the surface as that question might sound, listen to his response. And his response is so telling too. He says to Jesus in verse 7, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. What's he talking about? As the saying goes, is that when the pool would begin to bubble, that it was the angel of God that was stirring it up. And so when the pool would bubble, the first person who would enter into the pool would be healed. This was how the story goes. And so, of course, given that, what do you think is going to happen? In this huge pool, you have a bunch of disabled people gathering for the hope of being healed, made well. This is why he's there. So when Jesus asks him, do you want to become well? He points his attention to, well, sir, I have nobody to carry me into the pool. While I'm trying to get into the pool, somebody inevitably always beats me in first. How does he figure this? It's not as if he can see every single person when there's a mass movement toward the pool. It's, he assumes this because he's never healed. This pool for this man is a point of false confidence because it's become a point of superstition for him. Superstition is something as human beings we often lean into. I mean, think about the superstitions that we often have in our society. We might consider ourselves reasonable people. Let me ask you, are you a superstitious person? Superstition can raise its head in many kinds of circumstances. Do you find that you practice certain superstitions when you're watching your favorite team and they're down? And all of a sudden, you're looking to some kind of power to bring your team back. But more seriously, we see people have good luck charms in life. Those good luck charms can vary from one person to the next. You know, often people will keep their good luck charm with them in their pocket, carry it with them wherever they go. Of course, some of the you know, generic ones we're familiar with, like a rabbit's foot or some kind of lucky coin or a lucky item. Sometimes uh, men and women have their lucky shirt or dress or something that they wear because whenever they wear it, good things happen, right? A keepsake, uh, some kind of, you know, maybe your, uh, your grandfather's watch or your, your grandmother's ring or necklace or something like that. These items that people hold onto for good luck, for good favor, religious items, beads metals, places, there are superstitions. And all of these items are items that as human beings, we place false confidence in them for favor. As Christians, superstition is not lost on Christians. Even as Christians, we can be very superstitious. Church attendance, participation, for what? God's favor. If I'm showing up every week, uh, and if I'm really involved, then God will be favorable towards me. 
knowledge can be viewed this way. Well, I know a lot about the Bible. I've memorized passages and knowing them will bring me favor. Just reciting them will bring me favor. Superstition is a false confidence. Why? Because in and of themselves, they do not have the power to bring favor. They are things. They are practices. They're places. Superstitions place upon things the hope and confidence for a favorable outcome. It's a practice that we've been engaging as human beings for as long as we've existed. And we still do it today. Is there certain things you do in your daily life that really are superstitious? Even as a Christian, are there certain things that you do, certain things you hold on to as a point of receiving God's favor? Superstition is dangerous because superstition is all about the things that come from God rather than God himself. You know, the items that we so often treasure, we can treasure them for different reasons, but when we consider them to be somehow good luck or providing this kind of power, no things are a substitute for people. Amen? No medallion, no keepsake is a true substitute for the person. This is true as it relates to God. So the first thing we need to avoid if we want to become healed is we need to avoid the trap of being superstitious, of being a superstitious Christian. That's what this man is doing. This invalid, this lame man is doing. He has placed his trust not in God, but on this pool. And that when it stirs up, that somehow this pool will give him healing. And the irony of it is God himself is standing before this man saying, do you want to become healed? And his response is the pool, the pool. So Jesus's question really is profound. It's cutting to a very important thing that needs to be examined and understood by this man as well as all of the rest of us. We become healed first by avoiding the trap of being a superstitious Christian. And then this brings me to the second point, by putting your belief in the person of God, in Jesus. We must, as Christians, be very clear that the reasons why we do things is not because we are placing our confidence for, for, for favor in those things themselves. In verbatim repeating a certain prayer over and over and over, like magical words. Or the things that we often do. Oh, church attendance by itself. My consistency in attending church. That itself will bring me favor. Even the knowledge of the Bible itself will bring me favor. These things are all connected in the sense that they come from God. But yet, they themselves do not bring favor. They themselves do not have power in of themselves. It's all coming from God. Therefore, putting your belief in the person of God in Jesus is the thing we must focus on if we are to be healed. Healing comes from God himself, the person of God. And this is something that I think we often lose sight of, putting confidence in the person of God himself. God is a person, meaning he is somebody, he's not a thing. He's one that we can go to. He is one that we can have a relationship with. 
When we lose sight of the person and focus all of our attention on the things, that is where we really lose sight of what it means to worship God, what it means to really have faith in God. We need to put our belief in the person of God, in Jesus, because our relationship, our confidence is in him. His power is what is being made manifest. It is his power that we look to, to be worked in the world and in the circumstances. Amen. When we look at the individual things, we no longer are putting confidence in him. Jesus makes it clear with this man. It's not the pool. It's not this thing. Strip yourself of the superstition, the religious superstition, and come to me. So what does Jesus do to make this point? He tells this man and commands him with these words. Get up. Take up your bed. Walk. He hasn't set one foot into the pool. To break this notion that it's the thing that has power. Jesus says, get up. And to this, the man gets up. Jesus says, take up your bed. The legs that could not power him to walk, Jesus now says, get up and those legs strengthen up and he stands up. The bed that used to carry him everywhere, people would carry him from place to place. That bed that used to carry him, he is now commanded to carry and walk. And so he does. At once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. This brings me then to the rest of verse 9. Now the day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. And they asked him, Who is this man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed, did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed them. It's interesting to note in this passage what is occurring. Because in this action that we see in our passage, it brings me to the third point that I have. If one is to become healed, if you are to become healed, you need to avoid the trap of being a superstitious Christian. You need to be putting your belief in the person of God, in Jesus. And the third thing is you need to be acknowledging the active work of God. Acknowledging the active work of God. In our passage, what we see, interestingly, is that Jesus has done this sign. He has brought wholeness to a man who is broken who had not walked in 38 years, who had lost all hope. Here Jesus shows up and he heals this man who has been hopeless, who has been broken and brought him whole and done it in the sight of all these people where they could see it. And to that, what are the Jewish leaders focusing their attention on? It's the Sabbath. All they can see is that it is the Sabbath. Why? Because on the Sabbath, it is a part of the Sabbath rest to rest from your labor, to rest from your work. So, of course, the Jews then take this uh, all of many different lengths. So, you know, they had rules where you not only would rest from your, your labor, your job, 
but they would tell you, you couldn't walk a certain distance. You couldn't lift a certain amount of weight. You couldn't do these certain kinds of activities because that would be considered work and that would be breaking the Sabbath. So when Jesus heals, what do they focus on? They focus on the Sabbath. They missed the forest for the trees. There's three things that I want us to focus on when it comes to acknowledging the active work of God. First, in a real way, our afflictions are the direct result of our sin. We must acknowledge that our sin does not go without consequence or notice. You know, it is something that I think we kind of have bypassed. Sin is a serious thing. We acknowledge that in an intellectual way, but sin is a serious thing that has serious consequences. It is serious to the degree that God himself came into the world to give his life up as a ransom for sinners, as payment against that sin. Sin is serious. Can we confess that? So then if sin is that serious, then how can we just assume that our sin has no impact in the world that we live in and in the lives that we lead and in the experience that we have? It does. Sin has a direct relationship with our afflictions. When we sin, there are the consequences of those sins that we experience. Sin leads to other brokenness. You know, we see the results of sin in our society. Families are broken by addiction. We talk about addictions being a disease. Well, disease itself is a sign of sin. When we look at the opioid crisis that's going on in our society, can any of us say that, oh, that disease, that brokenness, that sign of sin is not impacting people's lives? Of course it is. It's spreading to everything else. It's breaking families, death and destruction laid in its wake. Sin has a direct relationship with our afflictions. And we need to acknowledge that sin does not go without consequence. And it does not go on without God's notice. I point this out because not only is sin having consequence in our lives, but sin also is noticed by God. And why does that matter? Because God looks at our sin and as his people, looks to discipline his people in order to bring us to himself. And for everybody who looks at discipline and hates that word, let me just say discipline is an integral part of love. Every day I am amazed by how much more love can grow. But parenting is both a mix of this. I look at my son and my wife says this, when you look at him, you have this expression of such joy on your face. Just watching him do regular things fills me with such joy. However, he's also a boy who needs to learn. And he does things that are selfish and needs some disciplining and some guidance from his parents. And so what happens when he does stuff that is really the kind of actions that can grow into habits that would be really detrimental for him? What happens out of my love for him? I discipline him. For Joyce, out of her love for him, she'll discipline him. We don't enjoy it, but we absolutely do it. And he, of course, does not like the experience, but he has to experience it so that he learns. That's the first thing that we need to acknowledge about God's active work is that sin has an impact in our lives. And God is working within that as well to discipline us, to work to our betterment. The second thing is that the greatest sin is to see God's work and then go on refusing to acknowledge it, to refuse to believe in him. That's the greatest sin. There are many different kinds of sins, but the sin that is the greatest is to see God's work and then refuse to acknowledge, to refuse to believe in him. 
This is tied to the gospel. That's why it's the greatest sin not to believe in God, not to believe in Jesus, given all that he has done, given the uh, work that he has done in the lives of people, in our lives. To see God's work and then refuse to acknowledge it, to believe in him, is the greatest sin. How often are we tempted to say, oh, bad things happen. And has, you know, nothing to do with sin. It's just bad luck. Or it's just bad fortune. Or it's just, you know, bad things just sometimes happen. Like kind of cosmically or magically. No, bad things happen because we live in a broken world where sin is powerfully at work. But even more powerfully at work within that is God who is working to build his people up. Yes, Jesus is redeeming us in the big picture of our sin, but he's also redeeming us in the midst of that sin in our day-to-day living when we acknowledge his work and believe in him. That's what God is desiring. And that belief then is really seen in belief that impacts the way we live, see things, the way that we perceive everything in life. And this brings me then to verse 16 to 18. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. You know who really missed the point are these Jewish leaders. They saw the result of God's work. This man was testimony to it. They ask him, how did you get well? And then he later goes back and he goes, it was Jesus. And what do they focus on? Not the power and majesty and personal nature of God's work. Talk about seeing the work of God and refusing to acknowledge it, refusing to believe in it. That's what they were doing. And this brings me to the third point of what it means to acknowledge God in terms of his active work. God is actively working, always has been. So believing that means making the connection between a personal God and his work in reality. These Jewish leaders should have seen what had happened, made the connection to God's work and who Jesus is, and thrown up their hands in celebration and rejoicing that God that he was personally at work among them. That's a point of celebration, is it not? When we see God working in our lives, isn't that a point of celebration? Amen? When we see God working in the circumstances of somebody we love, somebody we know in their lives, that's a point of celebration. Amen? Because it is evidence of the fact that God is personally at work in reality. These Jewish leaders who, above all the rest, should have been celebrating and understood this, missed it. Something that I think happens for a lot of people, even Christians in our Christian superstition, is that we can somehow separate the work of God from God himself. We can separate the concept of God from the reality of God himself in our lives. So even the good things that happen, it's kind of like, well, praise the Lord. But there's kind of this grain of, you know, I made it happen. It was all me. Or it was coincidence. It was just good timing. I stepped into the pool when it bubbled. And look what happened. If we're going to acknowledge the active work of God, then we need to be actively acknowledging by believing that this means that a personal God and his work is functioning in reality. God is at work in our reality, in our lives. 
We cannot separate his work and his personal involvement in our lives and in reality in general. But yet, I think this is what religion has become for a lot of people. Superstition. Theory separated from practice. Something you know, but not something we experience. I want to ask each of you this question to think upon. Is the practice of your faith in God revealing in your confidence in God or in the things that come from God? When you practice your faith in God, is that faith in God being revealed in the confidence that you have in him or in the things that come from him? Because if our confidence, our faith is revealed in the things that come from him, then we won't really experience the kind of healing that Jesus is offering. The becoming healed, the becoming well that Jesus is offering this man and that Jesus is offering to all who would believe in him. Becoming well is not just something physical. It is something to the depths of the whole of who we are spiritually, emotionally reconciled. And we experience that by putting our faith and confidence in him. We need to move away from the superstition. But have you been expressing your faith in God in superstition or really in him? I'll leave you thinking about our focus in a world filled with religious superstition and confusion about God. Jesus is the one through whom we know the personal and powerful work of God. The only appropriate response to him is to stop sinning and start believing.